vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what are you up to tonight? Oh, same old, same old, Matt. But let me ask you this. We are several weeks now into 2023 for the purposes of this show. Have you finally come up with any New Year's resolutions? Well, uh, as I had said i had planned on getting back into my walking and dietary habits and as of today i have succeeded hey good job and i will believe that you know that will be true at the same time that this drops as it is the same time we are recording we shall see i believe in you thank you sir and have you continued your resolution to be rude to those who deserve it uh, I haven't come across anybody lately, but I, I have that one. And then I want to, I want to enjoy things more. I just want to be at peace and content and just happy with things and people. That is a, a, a good resolution that, it, and that can be hard. I'm a guy who likes, you know, maybe not people, but when it comes to like, I like most things. I'm pretty easygoing when it comes to my media. Something's got to be truly terrible for me to actively despise it. Like the bottom 10 or so books on our list, for instance. Um, But it's harder with people because many people suck. Uh, That they do. But I, I think that is a noble goal. We'll see how it works out. But you know who's one person that nobody should like? One fictional person. Uh, anyway. Let me see. Knowing what the show is about tonight, uh, Joker. Ding 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 ding. Correct, sir. Hey. Because tonight it's one of the episodes that I like to call "Thrice Told Tales," where we get three versions of the same basic story. We've done one of these before with three different versions of the origin of Dick Grayson, for instance. But tonight, tonight is three versions of Batman's first encounter with his, I don't think we can really argue greatest foe. No. No. His his greatest foe, the Joker. Raish, maybe as a, a second? I think Raish is possibly the most threatening yes the the one who is the the deadliest in the long run but when it comes to impact on bruce's life and when it comes to just his sheer polar opposite it's joker and before we get really going in earnest a a thought that struck me upon reading uh these three this is not a story that we have seen adapted in film. Like, I think the closest we get is 89. That's that's the what I feel is the closest. But still, 89 is, is campy. 89 is silly. 89 is, you know, Jack Nicholson fucking chewing all the scenery he could stomach. But even in, you know, the oldest story we read, this 
story is deadly serious. Oh, yeah. The Joker's body count in the least serious of these three is still pretty high. And it gets remarkably high in a couple, in one of them. Oh, ain't that the truth. But yeah, it's again, weird that we have never seen a straight adaptation of this. And we'll discuss this a little bit. There are elements of this that make it into another story that we aren't covering tonight. It's not a first encounter, but there are elements of this that make it into the laughing fish, which when adapted, you get a little bit of that. But again, it's just the the Joker calling his victims thing shows up in laughing fish as well, which more could just be viewed as a Joker motif than a straight because that's the reason a straight adaptation it's just like hey this is something joker does because it uh it fucks with people (laughs) oh yeah before we get into the episode in earnest top 10 batman rogues we rank things yeah can we come up with a definitive top 10 batman rogues right off the cuff folks i will had no warning it didn't occur to me until we started talking so we're going to run with this. Oh, boy. All right. Number one is Joker. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And uh, I have to I have to take some notes here. I'm going to write this stuff down. All right. Well, let's just let's let's think of people we would put in the top 10 and then we can we can move them around. Right. Uh, so, so Joker, Joker. Riddler. Uh, I think Pinky. we. Yeah. I mean, do we do now? Here's the, here's one question. Does Catwoman even fall as a rogue anymore? Uh, if Batman has uh, put his bat thing into uh, a person, I don't think they go on the list. So no Catwoman, no Talia. Exactly. So Joker, Riddler, Penguin, Two-Face. Two-Face. Raish. Uh, that gives us six so far. Ivy. Yep. Freeze? Yeah. Scarecrow. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I mean, and that's the thing, because I in my head, this is if you put Catwoman in, that fills rounds out the ten. But without Catwoman, it gets trickier in that last spot. Could we just say the mob? That one's straight is like is like saying crime, you know, it's <laughs> corruption. Uh, I mean, because let's let's just think who who are, are in that case who are also Rams? Who are the ones that are close but no cigar? Hatter, yeah. Um, Hugo Strange, yep. Yeah, Hugo Strange. Um, um, it's again Harley. Well, again, it's. Not quite the same as Selena because there isn't the the romantic relationship, but Harley at this point is much closer to an anti-hero than a villain. Does Hush even fall into the uh, also Rands, or is he even the next tier down? Yeah, he is. He is like one-offs and honorable mentions. Man, um, again, Manbat is another one who isn't is more a tragic figure. He's not really a a rogue. He's as much as often an ally as an enemy. Well, clearly, if we're struggling to come up with a tenth person, they are they are at number ten, whoever it is. Right. Again, Zaz is, I think, uh, that that next level down. He's not 
even he might even fall into tier three. Same with the Court of Owls. They haven't been around long enough. I mean, Batman is such a deep rogues gallery. I wish, I mean, and I guess it's it's a balancing, but I wish there was an, another female villain because it seems like just one female villain on here seems sad. Again, I, I just, I can no longer consider Catwoman a full-on rogue. But we got to put somebody at the 10th spot. For sheer longevity's sake, is it the Mad Hatter? I mean, he's been... For, a... for lack of a better entry. Yeah. And, like, Catwoman gets, like, honorable mention number one. If she hadn't spent most of the past 30 years in anti-hero territory... Longer than that, frankly, since, like, the early 80s, so 40 years, she would be on this list. But she, you know, there's only a brief period where she was truly a villain right after uh, after the crisis. Other than that, she's been in close to an anti-hero. In some order, Bane and Two-Face at two and three. Bane so high because he did break the bat. I would say Bane at four with Raish at three. Okay. Because I think, I, I agree. Two-Face is number two, not just because he's Two-Face, but because the, the, the pathos of Two-Face's relationship with Batman makes him that important. And then Raish because he's friggin' Raish. And then Bane, because as you said, he broke the bat. Uh, Penguin? I think, again, there's longevity, there's... I feel like Penguin is a character, and I think I've said this before, who has never quite lived up to the potential of the character because they should have really made him the Lex Luthor of Gotham. Not in the genius sense, but in the guy who's become almost a supporting cast member, an antagonist more than a, a, a villain. That leaves us in slots six through nine, uh, some combination of Riddler, Ivy, Freeze, and Scarecrow. I think Scarecrow probably next. Again, I feel like Scarecrow has rarely lived up to the potential of the character, but the master of fear fighting Batman is a great concept. And... Tinian almost got it with Fear State, but there was too much storm and drang around it to really capture what you could do with Scarecrow there. So Riddler, Ivy, and Freeze. I think it might be in that order. I think Riddler is Batman's intellectual competitor. Which, I mean, yes, Scarecrow, Joker, Raish, Bane, all of all of these guys are brilliant, but that's whole, Riddler's whole shtick. Ivy's sheer power puts her up there. And Freeze might have wound up higher if he didn't have such a sliding scale of sympathy at this point. Mm, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, it seems like every writer either wants to make him very sympathetic or... Not so sympathetic, and it it slides around so much that I'm not sure where the character lives anymore. I am still a big fan of of Scott Snyder's interpretation that he's just a creepy weirdo with uh, an obsession with Nora. 
I actually think my, at this point, the Duggan version from One Bad Day, the one that sort of splits the difference, really works for me. Because that, I, that was moving, absolutely. Because I like that Nora did love him, that they had this relationship, but his own obsession, his own inability to let go is what makes him a villain. And especially that scene where she precisely tells him, you're not doing this for me. You're doing this for you. This is not what I want. Really resonant with anyone who has had, you know, uh, a close family member go through that into life stage. And you're, you, know, you convince yourself, oh, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing what they would want. And you really need to think about, is this what they would actually want? Uh, all right. Recap. Number 10. Cause we couldn't come up with anybody else. Mad Hatter. Number nine, Mr. Freeze. Number eight, Poison Ivy. Seven, Riddler. Six, Scarecrow. Five, Pinky. Four, Bane. Three, Raish. Two, I don't know why we didn't think of this. Two, obviously has to be Two-Face. And at number one, with many, many bullets tonight, Joker. And as he has now been ranked at number one, Let's get into the first version of the first confrontation between Batman and the Joker. This story is the Joker and the Joker Returns. This is from Batman Volume 1, Number 1. The writer is Bill Finger. The pencils are by Bob Kane. Inks by Jerry Robinson. With no colorist credited. Letters by Robinson and no editor credited. The cover date is March of 1940. A new killer is in Gotham, a madman who predicts the time of his murders. Meet, for the first time, the Joker. So I'm going to come out of the gate saying with something strong here. This is, to me, the best Golden Age story we've read yet. Because it's not goofy. It's hardcore. Even the most serious of the Golden Age stories we've done so far... I mean, Batman versus the vampire, but it has, you know, giant apes and things like that. And Robin, the boy wonder, which while neat has Zuko deciding to start taking over Gotham by starting with the newsboys. There are elements that are a little <laughs> kind of wacky. There is nothing wacky in here. This is Joker before Joker. There was any comedy to Joker. Here he's just a freak with a clown look to him doing horrible, horrible things. And I think this is one of the first Golden Age stories where the art is, is striking, specifically in the Joker. Now, the credits for this book say Bob Kane pencils Jerry Robinson on inks. If you know anything about Golden Age comics and specifically Bob Kane, those are the credits that have to be there because Kane had various things working in his contracts. This is Jerry Robinson on art. Kane might have done, you know, a rough layout, but this is Jerry Robinson who did this. Jerry Robinson should be, I don't know if he is, but in the same way that you get now Batman created by Bob Kane 
with Bill Finger, the Joker should be created by Bob Kane with Jerry Robinson. And Robinson was one of the best artists of the golden age. Oh, and I guess also should say before we go, Batman number one is four stories, five if you count the little two-page origin of Batman at the beginning. The first story in the book is the Joker. Then there is Batman and the Monster Men, then the Cat, and then the Joker returns. The Joker stories bookend the book. So instead of treating them as separate stories, I decided that we would just treat them as sort of one story, especially because they take place like a day and a half apart. Yeah. The the Joker isn't in jail for weeks or months. They lock him up for like a day and a half before he breaks out of prison. And if you're worried, we are going to get to the Monster Man in a future episode. Yes. Where we do the same gimmick again. Yep. Because there are plenty of these stories that they have done multiple versions of. There are also four other versions of the case of the chemical syndicate, by the way, all of which that are more Batman stories than the uh, shadow fanfic. That was the original case of the chemical syndicate. Well, of course I, I won't say that the Joker comes out of the gate fully formed as he isn't, particularly funny in this story and i think most really good joker stories he's got to kind of display that gallows sense of humor but he is pretty darn close to joker as we will see him moving forward in this story he's homicidally inclined from the go He seems to be doing a lot of this in here, partially because he seems to really like jewels, but also he seems to really enjoy just fucking with the cops. Like part of this whole thing seems to be, you know, let me put on a show. He is a showman, if not a comedian from Jump. And... There is immediately a menace to him, right? You you call your shot to intimidate. You call your shot to to be a showman. You know, uh, Babe Ruth certainly wasn't trying to scare anybody, but uh, the the Joker definitely is. Totally. To give a little more detail, this story opens with the Joker cutting into radio broadcasts and saying, "Hey." I'm going to kill this rich guy at midnight and steal his diamond. And the cops surround the guy and they've got the whole building locked down. And at the stroke of midnight, the guy just drops dead with the rictus, with the Joker smile and the Joker venom. And they check on the diamond and it's glass. And of course, as Batman figures out, it was a time released poison and the Joker robbed the place and injected the guy the previous day. But the Joker is doing this, as you said, to intimidate, to show that he is smarter and better than everyone else. And then he does something similar the next night, but a different method. He doesn't just do the same shtick again. And then we get another one of the Joker's trademark aspects when a mobster who had been planning to make similar heists puts it out into the mob grapevine that he thinks the Joker's a coward and he wouldn't 
you know, face him, he pricks the Joker's ego. And there again is one of the defining characteristics of the Joker. He's an pay attention to me. Exactly. The Joker is one of two Batman rogues who that is a big part of their makeup. The other one is Riddler, which is why theoretically the war of jokes and riddles should be a really solid story. If you're dealing with the Joker and the Riddler bouncing off each other, instead you just get, Hey, let me cram in every super villain that I can for six issues. But logically the Joker and the Riddler should play off each other well, because they are both just, these massive egos. But we're not talking about War of Jokes and Riddles tonight. We'll have to do it eventually. Mm-hmm. And you just you just remind me that that thing told in flashback and pillow talk and Bruce's deep, dark secret that he had to tell Selena before they could get married. God, what a crock of horse shit. I mean, you get Joker, the master of disguise. You get Joker, the the mad chemist. You get so much of what the Joker will be in the next 80 years right out of the gate. Here's a question for you, especially uh, we're going chronologically tonight. Yes, we are. So in the next story, I think we have a bit of this problem. How much explaining do you want to see about the Joker? How much how much backstory you need about your Darth Vader? Matt, does does he lose some of the luster once you start to bring in somebody like Cousin Melvin? Yeah, I feel like the Joker works best when he was the Red Hood, the thing at Ace Chemicals happened, and he became the Joker. I don't want to know who he was before he was the Red Hood. For all of its myriad faults, as you can tell, we felt where it's with his placement on the list. Killing Joke gets one thing right at towards the end where that whole flashback might not even be true. The line about, you know, if you have to have a past, isn't it wouldn't it be better if it's multiple choice? And Mad Love, where he the story he tells Harley to win her sympathy is a crock. He just told it to win her sympathy. I don't want to know who the Joker was before he put on the Red Hood. And I'm not even sure if something like zero year where they change the red hood to the, the anarchist works for me. I like the idea that you have no clue who he is. You have no clue what he believes, you know, have any clue about his personality aside from he was some dude in a hood who wound up falling into some chemicals and turning into the Joker. And of course we got the audio adventures with that. Perfect wrinkle. Mm-hmm. Chemicals didn't do anything, man. Yep. The chemicals were your excuse to just cut loose, which you get uh, somewhat of an inverse of that in the final story of the night where the chemicals do have some psychotropic effect. But we'll get there when we get there. We get there. Yeah, and it'll, well, and we'll, get, we'll get to Melvin uh, in the next story, too. Yes, indeed. And in the end, Batman and Robin, you know, they they beat Joker. They lock him up and they're set. But I love that, you know, the last panel of that first story is Joker saying that he'll he'll escape. He knows a way to escape. And nowadays, 
it would be quite a while probably would it be again because he's joker it's of course it wouldn't be but for a character like a new character it would be a little while before that character showed up again here not so much last story of the the book hey guess what joker's back and here i mean it's pretty much a direct continuation of this story where it's like you know okay a couple days later he breaks out of jail and he's still doing the same shtick he's still killing people calling his shot but now he's got more of a mad on for batman in specific and here he's he's going after the cops is his first victim out of jail is the the chief of police which i believe i read this somewhere and i want to make sure because you might know the difference between the commissioner and the chief is the commissioner a political appointee is that the difference could be appointed uh in some instances especially the old south uh the commissioner was elected because I think there's like multiple chiefs. There's like chief of detectives, chief of this, chief of that. And the commissioner sort of oversees them. Because I looked at this once because I was trying to figure out the difference. And it seemed like what I was reading when some of the some of the big cities, like New York, is that the commissioner is a political appointee. The mayor appoints the commissioner. So they're not necessarily protected by, you know, some of the same union stuff that rank and file are which means they can be bumped out of commissioner status without union reps and things and they sort of are overseeing while they're not you know boots on the ground which jim gordon does not ever (laughs) go with because he's jim gordon uh the only union that's a bad union is a police union now one thing also to bring up the the second story ends with the joker inadvertently stabbing himself while trying to get at Batman and him dying. And then a police doctor looking over the body and going, Oh, he's not actually dead. I tried to find a source for this online and I couldn't, but I know I read somewhere where originally Joker just died. And then at the end, Bill Finger was like, you know, this character is, there's some legs here. Can we just add a panel where it turns out he's still alive? <laughs> and thus the Joker was saved from true death by Bill Finger thinking this was a good idea. Which also might explain why there is a little panel after that on the same line of the, the grid where you learn the golden rules of Robin's regulars. Readiness, obedience, brotherhood, industriousness, and nationalism. Way nationalism to, yep to be a robin regular by doing good you know it's a very of its time gosh golly gee sort of moment you got this off comicsology yes so this has been quite retouched it has but not as much as i feel like some of the silver age stuff is it still has a rougher look to it in places like they haven't gone in and done some of the fine work there also is at least one bit that i'm like wait it's either a writer to artist miscommunication where towards the middle of the joker returns it says joker grabs an ancient mace when he's in a museum when it is clearly an axe 
and you know he, he hits batman a glancing blow on the side of the head and it's like not really how axes work mm, unless you're using no. the flat of the axe i mean a mace a mace is a bludgeoning weapon it is not a slashing weapon i played enough diablo 2 uh as a mace barb to know yeah, i know yeah. my difference D has taught me that over 20 plus years of playing we also get hints here that batman is not in good with the cops but it's not as big a deal as it is in the other stories but that's probably you know just a, a minor thing at this point i love just joker's various elaborate death traps i love when he kills the chief of police that he he booby trapped his phone so he calls him he holds it up joker screams into the phone and it causes enough vibration to make the needle poke him in the ear and get, deliver the joker venom it's like uh, and that that's a common theme tonight too of course because uh in in the last story they're booby trapped bullets yeah joker <laughs> boy he could could have gotten away with all of this shit and not gotten caught at all, except he had to make a big show of it, which is very Joker. The guy with the playing cards with the Joker venom on. And then the cops show up and like, ha, huh, we've got gas masks. Okay, I'll just shoot you. Like, let it never be said. And this is a Joker without, who definitely does not have the fixed grin yet. Only certain versions of the Joker have the grin that never goes away. We definitely see a a frowning or serious Joker in some of these panels. His first full panel is him with his fingers steepled under his chin and his lips are just sort of a thin line. And it's it's a great panel. And then a couple panels below that is the sort of prototypical Joker panel the one based off of actor Conrad Veet from the movie, The Man Who Laughs. And we'll get there in a couple stories. Do you have anything else in particular on this one? I don't believe so. So that means it's time to put the Joker on the big bowl. Okay. We are currently at 210 stories on the big board. Number one remains Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. At number 50 is Cry for Blood, the Batman Huntress miniseries. Still at a sexy 69, it's Batman Legend of the Dark Knight special, Choices or Fears. At 100 is Batman 66 meets the Legion of Superheroes. Down at 150 is Dark Knight, A True Batman Story, the Paul Dini real-life Batman story. And all the <laughs> way down at the bottom, it's White Knight. Boo! At this point, the top Golden Age story that we have is the mightiest team in the world, the first Batman-Superman team-up, which is up at 104. And right above that, actually, no, right above that, the first Batman, uh, Detective 235, the Thomas Wayne in a Batman costume story, is actually higher than that. I'd forgotten that. This is higher. Yep. This is a 
really solid, creepy crime story. I would probably put this above Untold Legend of the Batman at 87. Yeah. I Because that, that, that book is perfectly good, just doesn't have a lot of ambition. Right. I don't think this cracks the top 50, but I think it cracks the top 75. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, how, What do you think about this in relation to Hush at 58? When it comes to historical merit, this is one of the three most important Batman comics, Batman stories, with Case of the Chemical Syndicate and Robin the Boy Wonder. Those are the three most important historically Batman stories. But the other two are considerably lower because one isn't really a Batman story and one is kind of hokey. Uh, Robin uh, is barely an afterthought in these stories, by the way. Yeah, he, he pops up, but he's, as Joker will often address him over the years, he is Robin the boy hostage in these stories. And he is not in any of the other tellings, obviously, of Batman's first encounter with the Joker, because now they are set a year and a half to two years before Robin becomes a part of Batman's life. Oh boy. I'm trying to figure out why we have Hush up quite so high. It's pretty. It's a lark. I guess that's why. But I think honestly I'm looking like there's a couple of stories below it that I think are better. Maybe right above Hush? Because above that is Batman 400 which is that big, crazy Rachel Ghoul story. It's the final pre-crisis Batman story, really. And so much of Nightfall is cribbed from it. I can, I can live with this at 58. So the Joker and the Joker Returns are our new numbers, 58. And I believe that this eventually, Batman number one, will be the first issue with multiple entries on the list. It will. Because we like to keep we like to keep things real nice and simple and not complicated here. Back in that first year, I kind of now regret us doing that one issue where we did the multiple stories with uh, Death Cast the Deciding Vote and Silent Night of Batman as one book. Because I think for a lot of these, they should be separate. Monster Men and the first appearance of Catwoman are so completely different than these Joker stories. They should be ranked separately. And those two probably should have been too. But you live, you learn, you improve your podcast as you go. And what a first issue in terms of throwing a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. Superman number one is nowhere near as historically significant aside from the fact that it is Superman number one. It doesn't introduce any of the other great characters they already appeared in Action Comics number one and things like that. And Action Comics number one is the is the cover that gets revisited, you know, ad infinitum. Right. And I mean, again, that is a foundational book because that that gives you Superman, that gives you Lois. Action Comics number one, it's a Superman story, which is the difference between it and Batman number one because or Detective 27 because Detective 27 as I often like to say is a shadow story with the Batman in the shadows place yeah imagine an alternate world where they just kept up with this idea of 
detective comics where it's literally just all different, you know, manner of detective stories, like some, some hard boiled, some vigilante, some just crazy nonsense. You know, Batman is one of a host of characters. Slam Bradley stories get thrown in there. Slam was detective comics. Number one, you know, he was one of the headliners in tech number one. So like, I'm trying to remember who else appeared first in detective number one. Who are the characters that predate Batman in that book? Speed Saunders, who was, he pops up every now and then in justice society stories and slam the rest of these characters. I don't think ever show up anywhere else. I'm sure they appear in detective comics for a while, but nowadays I thought Zatara appeared. I think Zatara also shows up in detective before Batman. No, he's an action number one. So he predates Batman, but Zatara and Superman both appear in action comics. Number one, again, imagine a world where it was Zatara who took off and not Superman. Whoa, that would be freaky. Wouldn't it though? But our second first Joker story of the night is Images. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number 50. The writer is Denny O'Neill with art by Brett Blevins, colors by Digital Chameleon, letters by Willie Schubert, and edited by Archie Goodwin and Bill Kaplan. The cover date is September of 1993. The Joker has arrived in Gotham and is planning an elegant blackmail scheme. As Batman pursues him, He tries to remember where he has met the madman before and stop him before he takes another life. So now we're into the 90s. We're into post-crisis continuity. And so we have to revisit Batman's first encounter with the Joker because the original story doesn't quite work anymore. Because as we said, Robin is in there. And that doesn't work with the new timeline as established. And so you're hitting issue 50 of Legends of the Dark Knight. You get a little gold foil on the cover. You get Denny O'Neill, who started the book and is one of the great Batman writers of all time. And you let him go to town. This is by no means a bad comic. No, not at all. But it's probably the least of the three tonight. Yeah, it's got too much Melvin in it. That's the weird bit right here. Is that... For some reason, O'Neill decides that the Joker, I guess, isn't smart enough to have made the Joker Venom himself. So instead, he gives the Joker Cousin Melvin a, and I use the phrase as it is used in the comic, an idiot savant, which is not a phrase we use anymore. No. somewhere on the spectrum who has the intellect of an eight-year-old in every respect except chemistry. He's this chemical genius. So he's the guy who made the Joker Venom, which only works if the Joker never changes the formula or has to keep hiring chemists to alter it, which we've never seen. The Joker has always dealt with his own chemistry. And alas, never be able to. But I would have loved to ask Denny O'Neill precisely why he decided Cousin Melvin was a necessary aspect of this story. It's at least an interesting question to think about. You know, if if you accept that 
this was the Red Hood who fell into the vat at Ace Chemicals. If you want to buy that as the origin story for Joker, once he comes out of that, how does he know anything about, you know, Joker Venom? How does he create it? How does he make it? Well, maybe he's not an expert chemist. And if he's not an expert chemist, somebody's got to do it, right? This just goes back to the to the Darth Vader question. Like, how much time do you want to spend explaining? Oh, so Joker's got this cousin, um, a cousin who's great at making stuff up, and Joker can totally control him and manipulate him and fuck with him in admittedly some really interesting and depraved ways that show what kind of a character Joker is. But do you want to invest that much energy? Do you want to destroy part of the mythos in that process? And then do you also just want to have Joker view Melvin as expendable? So some interesting choices were made in this book, and I don't think all of them work. Yeah. Oh, by the way, did you notice Melvin's last name? Oh, I it's it's an S. No, Maybe? it's an N. Or an R, excuse me. It's Melvin Ripen, which read it backwards. N-A-P-I-E-R. Napier. Yep. Very good. It is a nod to 89 that Melvin's last name is Napier backwards. Very good. And one thing that we should discuss as we get into this and the next story are the things that they take from that original Joker story and the things that they leave behind. This one takes less from the original story than the third. Other than the Joker calling his shots and the use of the Cleopatra necklace, a bauble that the Joker tries to steal in the first story and gets caught in the process and then actually steals in the second of the Joker and Joker Returns. It is mentioned here as what one of his victims is trying to sell to pay off the Joker. Because here, the Joker's scheme is, I'm going to call my first couple shots, and then when everybody's afraid, I'm going to blackmail these rich people into paying me to not kill them, which is a different take than either of the other two, where the Joker is purely a homicidal maniac. Here, to paraphrase Daffy Duck, I might be a homicidal maniac, but I'm a greedy homicidal maniac. Hmm. The Joker very specifically has a financial motive, which we didn't really see in the first one. There, it seems like the Joker just liked stealing pretty things because he liked stealing pretty things. Like a crow. Yeah. It's sort of like the stealing the things was secondary to the proving he was smarter than everybody else and the glee of murder. Can be fun. Here, while he has zero compunction about the murder and seems to enjoy it in some places, it does not seem to be in itself a means to an end. And it's certainly not the third story, which is eventually, as you 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 come to, to, to learn, it's about revenge. What do you think is the best motivation for Joker? Just pure chaos, nihilism, ego? I like 
ego. I think we've gotten to the point where the Joker as pure nihilist has been done to death. Uh, Ain't that the truth? I think there's a gray area and I think it's, and it's why the story is up as high as it is. Soft targets work so well for me because yes, that's nihilism, but it's nihilism with a wicked and terrible sense of humor. And I think that's the thing that I, and I think I, I said it in that, that is the thing that we have lost in all of the recent Joker stories. There isn't any particular panache to Joker war. No. It's like, oh, I stole all of Batman's money and now I'm running his company and I'm giving away all of his tools to, to crooks. Yeah, I mean, there's an irony to that, but it's not particularly interesting. I think the least interesting thing you can do with Joker is to make him the boss of Gotham. Like he should be above that. He should be beyond that. He should be beyond territorial control. That that should be Bane's deal. That should be Penguin's deal. Maybe Riddler's deal. But Joker needs to have something more interesting going on. Two-Face as well. Two-Face, if the coin is coming up right, it's about order. Exactly. But no, Joker, Joker is the boogeyman. Joker doesn't want to rule Gotham because he doesn't care. It's all about the joke. If the Joker cared about that, and we're coming back to nihilism, and there is something inherently right about a certain nihilism within the Joker, because the joke that I personally think is sort of central to Joker's mindset is that people believe in rules Mm. and the rules are all artificial. So why are we following the rules? Let me release you from the shackles of your belief in an ordered world. And so a Joker who wants to run Gotham goes against that because then the Joker has to deal with minutia. Joker's not a details man. No, the dark Knight. I'm like a dog chasing a car. I wouldn't know what to do when I caught it. And I mean, that's not completely true because the Joker is obviously a man with a plan. He always has a plan, but the plan is let me show the rubes the joke. Let me put on a show. It's a performance for him. And we get that in this story. I mean, when it opens, he's got these mobsters that he wants to work with to steal all this money. He's like, let me show you the most beautiful thing in the world. And he opens the door and it's a mirror. And he's in the mirror. It's me. Right. And that's great. That is the Joker. He is that egotist who believes he's the best thing out there. O'Neill does some good, like, little detective-y bits in here and laying down some, you know, clues. Because at the beginning, we see that Melvin has a subscription to what is basically highlights. And it seems like a throwaway sort of moment for, you know, just Joker to point out that he is childlike. But in the end, Batman finds them by 
finding that Melvin had forwarded the magazine to his new address. Got to get your highlights, man. Yeah, it's smart detective work. We will see in this story in the next, Alfred is here, who is not in the first story. I don't believe Alfred even appeared yet by that first story. And here it's Alfred who is Bruce's sounding board. You know, who, as always, being that he's Alfred, gets, you know, the best lines where Bruce, after he finally beats the Joker, like, I shouldn't have hit him that hard. No, you shouldn't have hit him that hard once. You should have hit him that hard multiple times. That's Alfred. I want to mention Cousin Melvin for one more time and then leave him him be. His presence here is, I'd say, a distraction generally. But... The idea that Joker manipulates him not only because of his perceived lack of intellect, but because he has this self-image problem that he has been told that he is ugly. And you get the reveal that actually, no, he's quite handsome. Uh, almost like that uh, that Twilight Zone episode and that that reveal there. You don't really it doesn't really go anywhere. But again, it's just this little tiny example of exactly how fucked up the Joker is. And the fact that Melvin loves his cat and the Joker, when he wants to test the Joker venom, he tells Melvin to go take a walk and pick some daisies, which I have to imagine is a reference to Frankenstein with Frankenstein and the little girl picking the daisies. You're the, you're more up on your classics than I am, but the, the the film, not the but yeah, and then Joker poisons the cat. It's a literal inversion of the screenwriting book. Save the cat. Joker kills the cat right at the beginning, and you're you're showed that on the cover too. Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't tell Melvin. You later see Melvin looking for his cat, and it's like it breaks your heart. And when Bruce has done, you know, the research and found out about Melvin, who'd been experimenting with the the types of chemicals that make up Joker venom, the photos of young Melvin are all Melvin with the cat. And it's just like, just shows you what a complete monster the Joker is, how little he cares about anyone else. Melvin did love his cat. This one has the lowest body count of any of these stories. Joker only kills three people here. His two victims and then cousin Melvin. He killed many more victims in that first story. First two stories. He kills six or seven victims and a bunch of cops. I also want to call out in this one. We've talked about him before, but Brett Blevins, oh boy, the faces of his Joker Venom affected victims are truly terrifying. The ones from the Golden Age story, because the panels are so small, you don't get that close into them. And The ones in the third story are often so deformed that they're almost caricature-y. Here, especially in a couple of sequences where you watch someone affected by the Joker venom and slowly their faces distend, it's really creepy. 
we talked about Blevins in that Scarecrow annual that he drew, and there's plenty more Blevins Batman coming, but he, he ugh, that is some seriously disturbing art. And I love how they use the layouts and the borders on the panels to, to emphasize the panic and the chaos of the moment. Like on so many of these pages, you have, rigid borders straight rectangular panels and then the joker venom takes hold and you've got stray lines and broken borders and it really gets across the chaos of the moment just some really innovative layouts and approach to uh, visual storytelling yep top-notch art here yeah i mean on that one of the victims they do the the broken lines and on the first one three panels three panels two panels page turn one big half page panel of him in his final rictus pages 17 and 18 you get tighter and tighter on his face as you go mm-hmm. i also <sighs> like that this the the guy who joker's first victim in this version a banker named henry hate joker got him by being his uh script writer writing this speech he has to give. And you get the impression from the way O'Neill has it laid out that hate is not an engaging speaker because there's a period after every word. So I just picture him reading this piece. A funny thing happened to me on the way down here tonight. And I can't imagine the Joker put those in. I read that as him just reading like a toddler. Oh, absolutely. And let this let this issue be a lesson to any of you letterers out there, because I know this podcast is very popular among letterers. You don't have to do so much. You don't have to just change your emphasis and change your balloons and change your colors and just do all of this crazy nonsense that detracts from the actual story on the page. That's a perfect example of getting across tone just with periods. And when the, when the laughter sets in, like it's not in red, it's not giant. Again, the balloons aren't broken. It's just these little just subtle things that don't get in the way of the storytelling. And so many letterers today are so focused on showing off and just like, look at what I can do. Just fucking knock it off. I have one other particular note that I just want to call out. And it's one of those moments where it's just like, I love Denny O'Neill. I think Denny O'Neill has written, I mean, he's got, at least one top 10 story. He's got a lot of stories towards the top of this list. And this is not going to be, you know, anywhere near the bottom, but the last line of this story is one of those like wink at the camera moments that I'm like, you really didn't need that line. That line loses you a couple of spots on the list by it ending with. Anyway, we can take comfort in one thing. And that is we'll never have to worry about the Joker again. You can hear the slide from on the as Bruce says that because it's like, oh, isn't that funny? He really thinks like we didn't need that. You didn't need that line. This should have ended on some, you know, more thoughtful line about how Bruce deals with 
the madness that he's just experienced. Not a, <laughs> you see that? And Bruce Wayne would never dress in all white. What the what the fuck is that? Especially going to a cemetery. Yeah, this is not this is not Panama. He's not you know he's not on the beach. It's Bad luck. <laughs> we'll see this also in the next story with a nod to it. There is one throwaway line here acknowledging the last page of year one, the line about you know someone threatened to poison the reservoir, calls himself the Joker. Here it's just like, oh wait, the Joker, the one who threatened to poison the re- the reservoir, and then it just moves on. Do you have anything else on the story here? Because I have one other thing I want to discuss, but I want to make sure we're wrapped up with our discussion of the the issue proper. Uh, I believe we are. What you got? Did the version that you were reading of this have the pinup gallery in the back? That it did. Because there's some really nice pinups in the back of this. One of Jim Lee's first Batman illustrations, very much in a Dark Knight Returns model. A beautiful Kevin Maguire page with, you know, Batman in the foreground and all of his supporting cast as, you know, floating heads in the background. P. Craig Russell. The rare Bob Wyacek penciled page. Wyacek is mostly known as an inker, but it's Wyacek pencils with Walt Simonson inks, which is neat. It, it, it's, it's a pretty page. A fun a Brian Selfreeze page, which comes from that second part of Nightfall with Batman fighting Amygdala with the ventriloquist and Sacco in the background. Kevin Nolan, Batman and Catwoman, friggin' Mike Kaluta on the final one. It's just it's a oh. really I'm looking at that Kevin Nolan with Batman and Catwoman, obviously playing up the sexual tension. If that wasn't enough, we got Robin peeping <laughs> in the corner. With this look of oh boy in on his on his face, it's a great, really nice pinup. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's a nice little touch that I just wanted to call out that you know we also have these really nice pinups in the back of this book. We don't get good pinup galleries anymore. I I don't think there's a way, but back in the day they used to do these pure pinup gallery comics, and I don't think there's a way that we can cover them. Because they're not, you know, stories, but we'll have to find some way to discuss them at some point or another. I mean, we've got a couple of artist writers who seem to want to do pinup books. But I think that does it for this one. Well, that means it's time to put Batman Legends of the Dark number 50 images on the big board. This one isn't as high as Joker, Joker Returns. So it's it's not going above 58. No, but it is by no means a bad book. Definitely. I said we were done, but I, I had this point that I wanted to get in. Okay. There are a lot of good uh, Batman Gordon moments in here. Yes. Yes. Both this and the next story have some real good Batman Gordon stuff in them. Um, You know, the next story has this dueling narration throughout and here we get more of like the just kind of like the little gags and the little kind of like the relationship is building we see the bit develop about him you know vanishing and gordon's like why do you keep doing that man knock it off and batman's like look i leave when we're done and then he has that you know sarcastic may i leave now like it's 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 cute right it's it cute is. 
I would not put this below Batman the Spirit at 80. No, I would definitely put it above that. Um, I don't know if it goes above the delightfully wacky Where Were You the Night Batman was killed at 71. So I think it's probably, it's somewhere in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. So last week we put Batman TMNT in. That's now it's 74. Two weeks ago, excuse me. I think we dinged Batman TMNT for being very much everything you would have expected from that story without doing anything really aggressive or wild with that concept, except for all the mutants in Arkham at the very end. This This does something you wouldn't expect and it doesn't work out. Yes. So I somehow... I think Batman TMNT probably works a little better. Yeah. So that puts it between 74 and 80. I'm thinking 76 or 77. Because 76 is the Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. The long, oh, excuse me, the long Halloween special. The one that Loeb and Sales returned to that. The Calendar Man harvey and gilda book which is very much just sort of there and not terribly necessary but is really really gorgeous like tim sales final batman story this this has a melvin tax i i would put it below long halloween special yeah okay actually here's the question actually i you know what i think i I think i gave it a little too much i think the melvin tax drops it a couple more i think this is our new 79 because half an evil is at 78 that's you know the the return of two-face i think that is historically more important and has some similar sort of like that was it like really harvey this has some really joker moments (laughs) but that is historically more important works for me Still a good showing at 79 for images. And our final story of the night is The Man Who Laughs. This is Batman, The Man Who Laughs one shot. The writer is Ed Brubaker with art by Doug Monkey, colors by David Barron, letters by Rob Lee, and edited by Mike Carlin and Michael Siglane. Cover date is April of 2005. The Joker unleashes a reign of terror on Gotham, killing the rich, releasing the insane, and taunting the police. Can Batman stop the madman before he kills all of Gotham? So I mentioned it before, but the title here is the title of a classic film, The Man Who Laughs, from 1928, starring an actor named Conrad Veet who in the movie gets his face deformed and cut into this rictus. And that look is viewed as the inspiration for how Jerry Robinson drew the Joker. So this is going back to that original inspiration in a nod in the title. Also as we just talked about it a few weeks ago, this story picks up minutes after the end of Mad Monk. Because Mad Monk ends with Batman saying he heard something on a police scanner 
about a factory full of dead bodies. And this is the factory full of dead bodies, the beginning. This fits right in the gap in between where the Dark Moon Rising duology and Long Halloween takes place. This goes right in the middle. Man, what a what a fun trade you could build and just give to someone. It's like, hey, read this. Get all of the classic Batman that you really need. Classic Batman through the lens of modern interpretation. Speaking of trades, uh, the trade that currently you can get that has the man who laughs in it is the man who laughs and uh, another Ed Brubaker story we've covered made of wood in one trade. Interesting. Over the New Year's weekend, I hit a bunch of comic shops that were having sales. And this one shop had a bunch of DC trades that I'm sure they got dirt cheap from the distributor, you know, clearance stuff out for 50% off. And I got a copy of this trade for 50% off. I was like, yeah, if I'm going to be reading it for the pod, I'll I'll get that. And I was like, what else is in here? Because this is way too, oh, wow, made of wood. That's fun. So this one does a lot more of the direct lifts from the original story. The victims' names are the same. Some of the kills are directly the same. But Brubaker, I don't want to say pads it, because this is not a padded story, but he expands it. That's the, There's the, the better choice of, of words. He expands that initial story into a 64-page one shot from a 15 page story and monkey's art is hideous in a, a not a bad way like his images of joker's victims are super gross and brubaker modernizes this in places instead of the joker broadcasting over the radio the first thing he does is a killer reporter and then appear, you know, on the TV broadcast that she was running, which is one of those moments. There's a lot of moments in here where I'm thinking Brubaker might be riffing on specific other pieces of Batman media. But I'll get back to that in a second. But he kills the reporter, makes his first kill, and then steals the news van so he can break into television broadcasts whenever he wants. So we're updating uh, from radio to television. But that is one of these moments one of two moments that I wonder if they were kind of 89 references, because there's the whole bit in 89 with the reporter, one of the first victims you see of the, the what they call Smilex, the comics called Joker Venom Poisoning, is the, the anchor woman who gets the poisoning and dies on air, and the Joker eventually getting away on a helicopter hanging off of the ladder were both intentional 89 nods. Uh, what year was this again? Oh, oh, something. This is, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't think it was that. I didn't think we were that close to say the 90s, even if it wasn't intentional. It might be one of those things where again, you have such a memorable performance by Jack Nicholson that it's hard to get those ideas and images out of your brain as you're sitting down to write it, yeah. At the end, this does take place at the reservoir, even though it doesn't necessarily play right off of the end of year one with the Joker actively threatening the reservoir there. 
by using the reservoir, you're acknowledging a certain degree of year one and the importance of that story. You know, what was the one thing that I felt like was kind of missing the one aspect that I would have liked to have seen something of in either or both of images in the man who laughs Harvey Dent. Yeah. An interesting hole there. Other than I guess in some ways there wasn't necessarily a logical place to put him. Like, I don't know where you'd fit him, but I feel like, I would have liked some acknowledgement of Harvey's importance to Batman at this point in his career. Or at least something, especially a man who laughs, you know, you could have some conversation between Gordon and Batman and Gordon says something like, Oh, I, I think we have, we might have someone else. We might have uh, a new uh, ADA who's willing to, to go after people in Gotham. Or Gordon having to vent at someone about Rogan and the bureaucracy and venting at Dent because Dent gets it because he Mm. also knows the bureaucracy because there's a bunch of things here about the politics and how Commissioner Grogan and the mayor have basically thrown hero cop Jim Gordon under the bus. It's like, don't worry. Gordon will take care of the Joker. And it becomes a win-win situation for the corrupt because either Gordon takes out the Joker and they can say, see, we put the right man on the job. Or Gordon looks like an idiot and he becomes less of a threat to their corrupt political machine, which is never stated out loud, but is the impression that one gets from that. We also get stuff about the opening of or reopening of Arkham that we're establishing the origin of how the modern iteration of Arkham Asylum came to be. And something in here that points out what a bad idea Arkham Tower is. He's like, this is why you don't put the mental hospital in the heart of your city. Because when there's an escape, they're all right there. Yeah, you don't even need those don't pitch a pick uh, pick up hitchhiker signs because they're already there and they're already able to cause problems. As you said, you do have the dueling narration, which I think is probably why this was put in trade with Made of Wood. Because that has the same motif with Batman and Gordon both narrating part of the story. And as a matter of fact, I think, were they lettered by the same letterer? I need to look at the letterer on Made of Wood. They weren't lettered by the same letterer. But the word balloons with sort of jagged bottoms, the caption narrations with the jagged bottoms that are Gordon's narration in this are the same pattern that are used in Made of Wood for Gordon. As you said, here the Joker's motivation is revenge, but also a highly insane and nihilistic revenge. Because what it basically kind of boils down to is 
if I got dunked in chemicals and have to be crazy and nobody else got dunked in chemicals and poisoned. So I'm going to poison everybody. Yeah. Kill them all. This is of the three, the most modern nihilistic joker. It's still not the somewhat humorless nihilistic joker that we get in some of the more recent stories here. He is constantly yammering and having a string of not terribly funny jokes, but he is joking all the time here. I think we, and I I mentioned it before, but here at one point, Bruce exposes himself to a lighter dose of Joker venom to get away from the police because the Joker has threatened Bruce Wayne, which that's the first time in any of these stories where Bruce is directly involved in these stories. And so he basically poisons himself. So Alfred can get him out, give him the antidote he's created, and then he can go and do Batman stuff. But here the Joker venom has a psychotropic effect. Of course, I guess the argument can be made how much of the chemical that Joker was exposed to is the pure Joker venom because it wasn't lethal. He's obviously tinkered with it to make it considerably worse than it was. So was the initial chemical even psychotropic or is that part of what Joker did to make it more lethal? Awfully brave of Batman to expose himself, not knowing what maybe the proper dose would be or what the effects might be. And there's a few firsts other than Batman's first encounter with the Joker in here. There's the first Batmobile use and the first use of the bat signal at the very end. So it gets us right up to what you'd need for long Halloween. All the things that pop up in there are here now. This is a much more nuanced story than the initial Joker story, but that's because it's a modern story and it has considerably more page space to give that nuance. I would have liked a little more time dealing with Bruce fighting his first truly mentally disturbed foe because Bruce here acknowledges a couple of times he wasn't trained to deal with chaos like this. Yeah. That's an idea that comes up in basically a panel. You know, he says it's hard to believe that somebody would kill so many people just to hide his motive. And he says, I never prepared for this. I planned for the killers, the muggers, the rapists, desperate people doing desperate things, but I never imagined something like the Joker. It's a great line. And there's so much that could be mined there, but it's just that one panel. And I wish there had been more time spent with that. Gordon thinks about it a few times about what this city is becoming. But Bruce just sort of thinks about it in that one instance and then kind of has to move on to deal with Joker. Brubaker, God, but he writes a good Gordon. 
there's one little aside and it's one of these things where in a lesser writer pulling away from the main narrative for just half a page that really doesn't forward the plot any but it's just a character beat for gordon thinking about he doesn't remember the last time he spent with his family and it's just such a good character beat for gordon especially at this point in his career because we know we are at the point where he and barbara are sort of on the rocks because of how much he's working and we know where that is going but we get just a hint of it just this sort of little bit of establishing where he is as a character and i like that i like that we get character in here for Gordon as well as Bruce. And we get Bruce doing detective work. We get Bruce doing scientific work. This really is a well-rounded story. There's a reason why Ed Brubaker is probably my favorite writer in comics right now. He's not doing capes anymore, but the man knows how to write a good detective and crime story. That's why he does almost exclusively crime stories. Mm -hmm. Figure out your lane and stay in it. The secret to success. It's not early in Doug Monkey's career. I mean, Monkey, Monkey is one of these artists that I don't think you could call Monkey an a-lister i don't think he's ever been a guy who could open a book people rare i don't think are buying comics except i mean i'm sure there are because everyone has a fan base but he's not you know a jim lee he's not someone who people are going to read books for but he always strikes me as someone who's just like that one assignment off from being huge but at this point, he's done so many major titles that I don't think he's ever going to be a giant. I mean, dude co-created The Mask. Doug Monkey is often coming like, he was the guy they got. It's like, boy, J.G. Jones and then Carlos Pacheco really couldn't get through Final Crisis. Let's get Doug Monkey to come in and do the last couple issues. Because we were like, oh, we're going to have J.G. Jones. He'll be able to do it. Oh, no, he got like two issues in and then couldn't get out the rest. Look at Carlos Pacheco. He got out another couple. And then it was like, damn it. <laughs> I mean, Monkey, I mean, he did Superman Beyond as part of that. I mean, he's got, he's had runs on JLA. He's had runs on Batman. This is a little bit sketchier than some of his later cleaner work, but it's still very expressive. His Joker's face is just some great facial expression work. On Joker. The siege at the manor and Bruce being poisoned are some particularly good scenes. I don't like the splash page with Bruce in the throes of the Venom reflecting on Crime Alley. It's just too much going on visually, but I certainly like the idea behind it. See, I take that as... 
what's going on in Bruce's head is so discordant and broken that that page reflects just what's going on in his mind at that point. But I can also see why that doesn't necessarily work. It's this giant image of Thomas and he's clipping through a building and he's holding on to Bruce's arm and you've got the gun going off right there and it's a lot going on visually. And and I completely agree. Like this is supposed to be Bruce all fucked up on Joker Venom, but there's a fine line between portraying a storyline chaos and then it just resulting in visual chaos. Right? Like I'm just now noticing that all of the windows in the buildings there are Joker eyes. And that's a small detail that is fucking cool as all hell, but it's hard to notice that with all of the clutter of the rest of the page. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there. I mean, I don't think I have much of anything else to say on this one. I want to kind of end on a positive note because it's generally a really good comic, but it is the positive um, note we will end with is the ranking of it. Yes. I think, Capullo owes a lot of his style on Batman to uh, to Monkey. Mm. I can definitely see where you're coming from on that. But, you know, that's between him and his creative process. I got nothing else. That means it's time. But Batman, the man who laughs, but not the Batman who laughs on the big board. I think this is the highest of the night. I would agree with that. Ed Brubaker can write a comic book. So that means we are above 58. Yeah, we're, de- we're we're top 50 on this. I think we're somewhere in the low, the high 30s, low 40s. So in this territory, we got difficulties, right? Difficulties moving up because a lot of these books have some emotional moments that this never quite reaches. So for example, I I know we weren't talking about something like 26, but Dark Knight Returns, The Last Crusade, probably the best Frank Miller work in the last 15 years uh, because it, it has some real emotional beats to it. Same thing with Lonely Place of Dying, Golem of Gotham, 37 and 38. Right. Like that was, I was looking at those and I was like, okay, it can't go above Lonely Place of Dying. So I was looking down in that next kind of tier in between something like, oh boy. Now I'm looking at it and it's like, it's hard. I mean, anything when we're getting up this high, it's rarefied air. And I think if they had spent more, if Brubaker had spent more time playing with Bruce, dealing with how do I deal with this madness, this could have been a top 25 book. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you hit some of the same notes that, for example, Dark Knight hit about escalation and about Bruce struggling with, I very literally helped create this guy, but is my war on crime doing more harm than good? Right. And we get a little bit of acknowledgement of that in images. And I think there's a little bit 
of that at the end with Bruce talking to Jim. But again, it's a handful of panels. There's a little bit when Bruce is looking at the Red Hood earlier in the book, a little bit about escalation. But again, it's spots. It's not fully imagined. It's not a full part of the story. So let's see. What about somewhere in the top half of the 40s? Okay, well, 42 is another Joker story. That's a Savage Innocence, the Spectre story, where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. And we kind of look at the the Joker's psyche and realize that he honestly doesn't have a conception of right and wrong. So how do you give divine wrath on someone who doesn't understand sin? That is a deeper story than this. On a philosophical level. Yes. But on a narrative level, I think we got more going on here. Yeah. That book relies a lot on the philosophical discussion, the kick-ass art of the Joker doing all this crazy shit with the Spectre's powers, and the look in, literal look inside the Joker's head when Corrigan is trapped there. But it's it's a much more straight narrative. But it also has some great Joker bits with Joker being like, oh, you can have this whole club inspired by me? No. I don't want any posers. Hmm. I don't think you can go above the story above that. 41, Demon's Quest, the first Rachel Ghoul story, because it's the first Rachel Ghoul story. And it's only this low because it's got those like weird middle chapters with, you know, brains and jars and stuff. If we had yeah. just done 232 and then 242 to 244, then the Neil Adams stuff exclusively, again this would be considerably higher, but it's got a really soft middle, but it's got a really strong beginning and ending. I think it's a question of, is it above or below a Savage Innocence? Because as much as I like Tim Sale's solo number one, it's beautiful. That one Batman story in there is a lot of fun and really good. This is literally the best version of Batman's first encounter with the Joker. It's narratively more important. It's got some really good notes that we just wish had been fleshed out more. It is narratively more important, but it is telling a story that's already been told where Joker getting the Spectre's powers is new and cool as shit. Okay. This is our new 43. I believe so. There we go. And one day we will do the Batman who laughs. We will. We will do many stories with the Batman who laughs. In fairness to editorial, they uh, they got real high on that character for about uh, six months, and he's gone away. Yes, he got his use, and I mean it's really a trilogy because it's metal, the Man Who Laughs miniseries, death metal. That's the trilogy of Batman Who Laughs stories. There's some Justice League stuff in the middle there too, but it's mostly those three. And again, as a concept, Batman merged with the Joker is a really great concept. It was just a little too much of it. Indeed. But that that does it for tonight. And interestingly, us speaking of the Batman Who Laughs, next week we're reading three stories by the man who created the Batman Who Laughs and arguably the most important 
bat writer of the last 15 years, Scott Snyder. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen Kaman, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, mm-hmm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Sam Utes, Hopper, <laughs> Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sregioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.